Well, hello there, and welcome to the Deadly Analysis Podcast. Uh, if you're new to this channel, this is a place where we, every other week, uh, analyze and discuss the fears underlying good horror films. We do our best while we're doing that to not go on tangents because uh, tangents are bad. Tangent universes are even worse. Uh, one minute you start rambling, the next you have a plane engine landing on your crotch. So we don't do that here. We don't go off on tangents. We'll do our, I'm doing that now, actually. I'm going off on a tangent. Great intro, Noah. Uh, so thanks for joining us tonight um, as we delve into the uh, mad, mad world of Donnie Darko, um, which can best be described as Jake Gyllenhaal having a really bad hair day. H-A-R-E. Yeah, so uh, this movie tells the story of Donnie Darko, um, who is um, a somewhat troubled teenager who receives disturbing visions um, on a regular basis from a bunny rabbit telling him that the world is soon going to come to an end. And uh, he receives this knowledge through what I like to call hair mail one could say. Hair mill. These are terrible puns. And so this all sort of begs the question, um, you know, is all this really happening? Is it all in Donnie's head? We'll kind of discuss this throughout the evening. Um, you know, uh, and really at the end of the day, why should we care at all? Why should we care at all? Like care at all. Last pun, promise. Uh, so I'm going to unpack what I think is probably going on in this movie. And I say probably going on because there's really a ton of ways that we can interpret like the story, what's actually happening in the movie. I, I'd like to focus on some other things. I feel like there's a larger, uh, really important themes, a, a lot of philosophy, a lot of political stuff going on in this film. But in terms of what's going on in this movie, um, I watched the director's cut, which I think lays out sort of what's happening a little more clearly. Um, so from here on out, spoilers, you know, just like we do in every session, if you haven't uh, watched the film, listen at your own risk. But in the film, we see a somewhat young and troubled Donnie Darko, played by Jake Gyllenhaal, he investigates the idea of time travel in an attempt to turn back the clock and prevent the world's seemingly impending doom. And so the movie introduces the idea of time travel and parallel universes. And as best as I can understand what's happening, time is in this film, time is generally a stable construct, but every once in a while, our dimension gets corrupted for some reason and breaks off into a tangent universe. And this tangent universe looks and feels exactly like our own, except there's some very odd and very different rules built into it, right? The first of which is that the tangent universe only lasts a few weeks, in this case in the movie, I think 28 days before it collapses in on itself. And if it does this, it can cause a black hole that will not only destroy you know, the tangent universe, but also our main universe that we came from as well, which is not good. Um, and so within this tangent universe, an artifact will spontaneously appear. In this case, in the case of the film, it's a plane engine. And this artifact makes the tangent universe unstable. And in order to bring stability back to this universe and ensure that the black hole doesn't destroy all of reality, the artifact must be removed from this tangent universe. And the only way to remove the artifact from the tangent universe is by way of the living receiver. And this is Donnie Darko. Donnie must guide it out of the tangent universe, the artifact, with the help of some fairly, I guess, cosmically gifted powers. So for example, he has increased strength. He has mind control to a certain degree. Uh, he can conjure water and fire and has a telekinesis. And so the tangent universe has kind of a, a weird set of rules that also govern everyone else, like the people that exist within it. So there's two sorts of people in this tangent universe. There's the manipulated dead and the manipulated living. Right. The manipulated dead uh, are people connected to Donnie that die within the tangent universe. So once the tangent universe has been instantiated and when they die, they gain their own really weird and unique powers. So, for example, having the ability to travel through time, hence Frank the bunny. Right. Donnie kills Frank in the tangent universe and Frank becomes bunny boy. 
right? And the manipulated dead have unique knowledge of the impending doom that's about to happen, and they're essentially tasked with guiding Donnie, the living receiver, to save reality, right? You following me at this point? We good? All right. So, uh, so we see Frank the bunny, you know, doing this essentially throughout the entire film. He's trying to guide Donnie to save the universe. All right. Now there's also, so there's a manipulated dead and there's also the manipulated living. Now the manipulated living are people connected to Donnie that are living clearly that are subconsciously pushing Donnie to achieve his goal, to save the world. His teachers, at least a couple of them are kind of a good example of this. All right. So lastly, the manipulated dead and the manipulated living have unknowingly set up something called the insurance trap, not insurance trap, the insurance trap. And this is basically a way of forcing Donnie so that he has no choice but to push the artifact, the plane engine, out of the tangent universe and um, into the, the main universe. It's sort of a, a way of ensuring their own survival, right? So Donnie needs to reset and fix all of reality and it's their job to ensure that that happens or else they die too. And that insurance trap is Gretchen. Gretchen is Donnie's girlfriend. And so in the film, a chain of events occurs that um, sort of leads Donnie to fall, to meet and fall for Gretchen. And then her eventual death ends up being the catalyst that causes Donnie to shoot Frank, making him the manipulated dead, Frank the bunny, who is the very person guiding him throughout all of the film. If your mind hasn't exploded yet, I don't know what you're doing. Mines are, I'm reading this and my head's already exploded. Um, so this creates the manipulated dead Frank who ends up saving Donnie at the start of the film. And, uh, but, th but that's really the trap, right? If you think about it, by doing all of this, the, ma the manipulated have essentially devised a scenario where um, an emotionally compromised Donnie watches his girlfriend die. And not only that, but he's probably gonna be blamed for it also. Um, and you, you see this sort of towards the end of the film. So he's fairly desperate. And in his desperation, he knows the only way out is to end his own life. And so he, at the end of the film, he uses his powers one last time to send a plane engine, presumably the same plane engine, I don't know, uh, through the vortex that's been created over his home. And this resets things. It erases the last 28 days from ever happening, uh, but it also has the added effect of killing him in the main universe, because that plane engine lands on him now and he dies. So it's implied at that point, once all of this is done at the very end of the movie, that the remnants of this event are still felt in the main universe afterwards, right? We see this at the very end where Frank sort of touches his eye. It's where Donnie shot him. Uh, Gretchen has this weird moment with Donnie's mom where they sort of like do this thing together. Like they know, but they don't know there's something there. And uh, that's Donnie Darko. So that's, that's one interpretation. Now the other interpretation is that Donnie was nuts. That's it. And we can end the whole podcast there. Bam. Donnie's crazy. The end. Um, so uh, this film was Shayra's pick for this week. So I'm here with Shayra, uh, Jim, and Garrett. And, um, you know, this is a this is kind of a culty cult classic. Culty cult classic? This is one of those culty ones that has a huge fan base. Lots of people like it. Um, I feel like it's gotten more popular in the years preceding the movie coming out. Didn't do that well when it came out, from my understanding. Um, but people, you always hear people going, oh yeah, Donnie Darko, you ever see, you, you just, you sort of know what it is, even if you haven't seen it, you know? So I'm uh, curious why, Shara, you pick this film for the podcast to talk about. Is it, does it scare you? Is it just a, are you part of that culty cult classic people? You wear a bunny suit, everyone? Like what, like why, what did it for you? I mean, I do own a Frank t-shirt, so uh, <laughs> I, it is kind of a cult classic for me, but um, I fell in love, I fell head over heels, if you will, uh, for this film when I first saw it, when it first came out. And um, a lot of what drew me to the film is the fear it 
induced in me about am I actually in the primary timeline right now? Is this like, are we gonna have an impending doom anytime? Um, also the philosophical idea of like, everything started on Thursday. Um, like what, when did time actually start? How much is just embedded in my head? Um, so it started to fuck with my head. Like what is real? What is the right timeline? What is going on? But the main thing that scared me and this, maybe only certain people will uh, attach to it. Um, can't remember the name of the teacher slash parent, but the um, the chick who was teaching about the the uh, good and bad moral scope of things, um, you know, saying that this is the spectrum of good and bad and love know, and fear, that, love that, or fear, yeah. right? Uh, that's my mom to a T, <laughs> and so like there, there's this weird thing that happened to me where um, I think there was just a particular character that reminded me way too much of someone in real life that was absolutely scary to me. Um, even if someone is shown to be evil, she's going to justify it. Um, even when she is shown that this is not an accurate depiction of what humanity is, is able to be lumped into, she's still going to follow it, like a cult following to something. And even when people try to explain in the nicest of ways that she's wrong, she's going to be steadfast in her view, and that is actually a huge fear of mine, is that some people are just going to always be heading in the wrong direction <laughs> on what humanity is, and there's no getting around it. They don't even see their own hypocrisy when they put little girls on a stage in tight clothing doing sexual type dances, and then they want to go around trying to tell other people that they're immoral. Um, so there, there was a character in there that really stood out to me that scared the shit out of me in her, but um no the the time the timeline stuff really fucks me up and i think i first found out that i had a fear of the timeline stuff when i watched um and read stephen king's the langoliers i don't know if you guys have uh watched that but i, I thought there was a similar kind of viewpoint where time travel is going to happen during sleep and um through black holes and now what are you going to do uh, is time going to eat away at you and, and and take you out you know you, you only have a set time to live now so you're you're in the wrong realm and now you have to die um so that i think there's a lot of elements that just came together for me that really fucked me up and i had to watch it probably about 10 20 times before i was like yeah i, I think i get it now <laughs> maybe i don't know yeah, I'm with you, especially with the idea of that character, that particular character, sort of the love versus fear dichotomy is being one of the, I, I would call it a scary thing. I mean, it is a scary thing to have people so steadfastly giving very simplistic black and white answers to very complex problems, especially when you apply that across the board and systematize it, which I think is what Donnie's working against, right? Donnie is this complex character who who understands the complexity of the world, even at a young age. I mean, he's still an adolescent. He's got the adolescent shit going on, but what he's what's happening is he's, he's fighting a system of a, a sort of like an institutionalized adult that's just been watered down and sees everything, these systems that are just so black and white and that doesn't see the world for what it is as a complex place. In fact, there's actually a scene where he's fighting the teacher about this, right? He's like, that's not how it works. Like it's way more complicated than this dumbass system of love over here and fear over here, right? Um, that was the most interesting part of this movie to me. I, I actually felt um, that this was, the, the, 
this beat the idea of the sciencey stuff in this film. The sciencey stuff in this film is okay, but I, have, I actually have some criticisms for that part of this movie with the idea of the rules and how they're set up and who set them up and exploring why certain things aren't answered, right? So there's, I have some criticism for that. I, I don't have any criticism. In fact, I applaud the idea of exploring, you know, um, sort of a, I guess we could call Donnie a kind of a Christ-like figure, sort of. Uh, in some ways, like having him stand against sort of the, the, we call it a moral paradigm. It's very Nietzschean in some sense, right, Garrett? Like good versus evil, like beyond good and evil. Like these very set up, very, I don't want to say arbitrary, but um, very uh, established norms that end up being so, say vague, but like so basic that they don't really have any good effect in helping people. Like think of Jim Cunningham when he's giving his, his little speech and everyone's coming up to the mic and they have all these various different problems that require very specific complex answers and they're all answered with the same kind of bullshit about love and loving yourself and love and fear and it's like that is terrifying to think that a world in which those are prescriptive answers um is where it ends right uh, that that to me i think i thought was the best part of this movie sort of exploring those things not the sciency time travely stuff what do the rest of you guys think I should also mention that we watched, I watched the director's cut. Did you guys watch the director? Who who here watched theatrical? I watched the theatrical cut. So okay. some of the thing, <laughs> I was just like, oh fuck, I watched the wrong movie. <laughs> it's like coming to class and like you haven't read the homework. I made all. a huge miss for those and watching you this. You are now the, oh. I know. Oh, so for, for those watching, all our viewers, I failed in our like private group that we have where we're going to talk about the films. I, I failed to recognize the monumental distinction between the director's cut and the theatrical version. And so I was like, let's watch Johnny Darko. And I was like, yeah, it kind of makes a difference depending <laughs> what you watch. So be interesting to get your take on this. I don't know what I was talking about. That never really You're happened, Jim. insane was my take on this. Like either that or I just, I, I, I showed up with the wrong presentation and it's my group's time to go. Uh, that, that was, <laughs> I, as I was listening to you, I was just like, oh shit, something is wrong. I'm going to be quiet for two hours and hope no, no, it doesn't call on me. Um, but I mean, okay, so I guess <sighs> comment more on the uh, the character interactions. And uh, one of the things I wrote in our little little chat here is uh, Holden Caulfield equals Donnie Darko, that Donnie becomes, at least in the theatrical cut and in, and then your interpretation of of Donnie's character interactions, um, he he becomes kind of a uh, a Holden Caulfield character who's sort of looking at all of these adults and saying, look at what how phony you are and how ridiculous all of this is. And even the whole Patrick Swayze character, like that's a perfect person. It's a perfect actor to cast in that role as just this uh, this this guy who's like never seen a red light and then he turns out to be a pedophile or some shit. So that's... Uh, I thought that was an interesting reversal in the way the film is sort of commenting on the phoniness of adulthood in the real world. I don't know, Garrett, did you watch the uh, Netflix? Did you watch this on Netflix too? Uh, I, when I first saw the film, I saw the theatrical cut. And then the second time I saw it was right after I saw the first time I watched it I, I, again, very shortly after the first time I watched it. So I watched the theatrical cut again, 
Third time I watched it, I watched the director's cut. And the fourth time, which was just last night, I watched the uh, theatrical cut again. So I actually am, am fairly reasonably aware of, of the which do you Which do you prefer? That's that's one of the questions that's being asked in our chat. Someone yeah. who's seen both, which do you prefer? I mean, that, that's a, sort of a tough call on my part because, I, I mean, one of the things I really enjoyed the first time I saw it was precisely that there was so much ambiguity and I didn't understand what was going on and I had to think about it and replay it in my head and go back and watch it again. And I always enjoy a movie that does that to me. Um, at the same time, you know, watching the theatrical cut twice, I came to the conclusion that the, the, the film isn't just sort of open to interpretation. It's, it's got massive holes in it that make it impossible to make any real sense of. And then when you see the, the the director's cut, those holes are then filled in, but it sort of loses that uh, that sort of awe and mystery of what the hell's going on here. It's 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 much more clear, um, but also much less interesting. So for me, watching the theatrical cut twice, I saw the theatrical cut when it originally came out, and then the theatrical cut again last night, and watching the theatrical cut, it seemed really, like all of this stuff about parallel universes and Donnie has powers and Donnie doesn't really have powers in the theatrical cut. I mean, maybe a little bit, but even then he's just a sleepwalking kid who can apparently, his only superpower is that he can sleepwalk without people noticing him. And that's that's the extent of the super super Donnie in the theatrical cut. So uh, for me, the theatrical cut was just this clever little time loop that uh, works as works as a clever little time loop movie, um, and doesn't really go much beyond that, except for some of the character stuff that you've you and and I assume the rest of us are going to tease out over the course of the next next couple hours. So for the you know looking at the film from the perspective of what was released in the theaters and then perhaps why the film didn't do so well in the theaters and then why it gains this cult following is because there's there's many different layers. It becomes a is Deckard a replicant kind of debate uh, that that I think you're right, Garrett. The the director's cut, from what I'm hearing, fills in some of those holes. But uh, well, it even it even uh, it might even fill in the mental illness hole, right? So that's one of the big differences between the director. The, clearly, there's a lot of big differences between the director's cut and the theatrical. But one of them is there's a scene, uh, Jim, where uh, Donnie's talking to his therapist, and the therapist says, "You can stop taking your medicine. They're just placebos." So oh, it, that <laughs> is a huge change, right? <laughs> yeah, that makes a big difference. Yeah, that makes a big difference. I I gotta go watch this. Yeah, I was gonna say. All right, see you guys next <laughs> week for the. Yeah, we'll we'll restart. <laughs> it's also kind of yeah. malpractice though, because it's pretty clear that uh, he does have some issues, and he should not be on placebos. He should have yeah. very much been on real medication. Yeah, I mean, it's what's funny, wait, wait, yeah, real, real quick, what's funny about this is when they showed the pill bottle in the medicine cabinet, I paused the movie to try and figure out what pills he was on. So now I feel like this entire, uh, this entire bit has been, uh, has been, the rug has been pulled out from under me. By but here's the interesting thing. Most people that are huge Donnie Darko fans actually get angry at the director's cut. They're like, yep, fuck that's you. Right. That's you what I was going to say. Not, yeah fucked it <laughs> and so um it's nice to know that they really were trying to go down this very real time travel uh storyline and stuff but it, i think i think garrett's right when you have that 
what is actually going on here? Even when it ends, you're like, ooh, what, what is happening? That's that's kind of an awe you like to have when you leave a theater, right? Where you sit in a car with your friend afterwards for hours and, and debate what is actually going on. That's a great film. One that's like, here's how it happened. It's like, ew. <laughs> Don't don't tell me all this stuff because now I can actually explain why you're wrong and find all your plot holes in the movie sucks. So I think a lot of huge fans like the theatrical version best. So if that helps you out, Jim, in any way, you probably watched the better of the versions. Yeah, that's totally true. I was going to say when I posted on our social media that we were watching this, someone asked me, um, you know, are you watching the theatrical or directors? I said directors and they said, oh, that's the that's the. Um, that's the worst version. Like that's that's the nobody. All the people who like Donnie Darko don't like the director's cut. And I just kind of waved it off. I was like, ah, oh, whatever. Fuck cares. Okay, I, I, I see the error of my ways now. I, I I have to bring up a bit of a tangent here. I'm curious if any of you have seen Richard Kelly's other films, his other feature films. That is. I have not, but I saw your social media comment that he hasn't made anything else good other than Donnie yeah, Darko. I mean, it's I I. I I love this movie when I first saw it, and I was so excited for his subsequent work and his his follow up films, uh, the the box and um, oh crap, what's the one called? Um, had the Southland, Southland yeah, Tales. Southland Tales. Thank you. Yeah, they're they're both just atrociously bad films, like like painfully bad films. I I I went into both of them really wanting something that's awesome, and I suppose you know, credit where it's due, you can tell it's the same director. It definitely sort of has his sensibility to it, but just nothing comes together in either of those films in the way it came together in, in Donnie Darko. So it's, it's... But I think a lot of what made Donnie Darko so fucking fantastic was that there was a vibe throughout the whole thing that was consistent, which didn't happen in those other films. That there was um, something about it that you're always like, what's happening? What, what, what's happened? And, and that mystery is what adds such a great element to it. But also you have things like two actual brother and sister actors interacting as brother and sister in a very brother and sister way. There's authentic moments like that that make it feel like it's really happening. And um, the fact that it's happening in the past and they're talking about stuff like Dukakis running for office and young people arguing with their older parents about who are the right politicians to have. We can relate to that, you know, even if it's in a different time period, we can relate to those kinds of things. So I think there's just relatable material in the story that helps you attach to the characters right off the bat. And there's a character for everybody. So. And I, I, I have actually some, some, some serious criticisms we want to get to eventually, but uh, I, I want to continue to praise the film when I think it consistently gets right. Uh, the soundtrack, I think, is fantastic. You know, I just, I love the music. You know, great sort of, you know, uh, mid to late 80s yes, songs. Yes, uh, Really well done. Obviously, the, uh, the, the sort of the, the picture, the, the, the visual image of Frank is just as iconic for a reason. I don't know who designed that, but damn, they didn't get paid enough. Um, they did such a great job. And also his sort of vocal presentation, uh, the camera work I thought was excellent in this. So there's 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 a lot about this movie that really is you know aside from the obvious sort of awe and mystery that deserves uh, uh, considerable praise. Why are you wearing that stupid man suit? That's what I always ask myself. You know. Um, Does the director's cut shed more light on the Mary McDonald character, the mother character? That's a good question. I don't. I can't really compare it to the theatrical. I sh I, sh I okay. should have done my homework, to be honest with you. Um, 
Well, yeah. I mean, she was really detached and kind of inhumanly detached from everything, which uh, in some ways is Mary McDonald acting, uh, but in other ways is <laughs> I'm not saying a bad thing about her. I mean, she's just, she's, she plays a detached character very well. Like she, all of her characters sort of look at the world as though, uh, what are you fucking crazy people doing? And uh, there was a similar vibe to the mother character here. And uh, so she's like, what, an in a manipulated living person, a manipulated dead person or a-, a Living. A, so she would be part of the manipulated living. Manipulate, right? okay. Yeah, so she's, uh, and this all comes from uh, the, the Crazy Lady's book. See, this is where, I don't know how much of this was in the theatrical, but um, explains the rules essentially in the director's cut, the rules of what's going on. Really gives you a lot more, I'm seeing, of what's actually happening. You, you can find well, pages from the book online that have yep. been captured and frozen, and, and so you can read the, up on it if you like that way. Grandma Death's book, yeah. It, it Grandma does. Death, that's right. It does. It does help uh, help you understand stuff. But yeah, you're right. That character is very detached, and I think that's one of the beautiful things about her character. Um, when you see her trying to reach out to her son, and he's just like, "You're a fucking bitch." Like most people would be like, "What the fuck, man? She's trying to reach out to you. What the hell is your problem?" But if you've had a cold, detached parental figure in your life, you can understand where Donnie's coming from, where he feels like. Uh, he maybe doesn't have that maternal love that he needs. And maybe that's part of what's causing him to suffer as much as he does. So I think she plays that role really fucking well. Um, if she's trying to reach out to her son, is it still cold? Yeah. I mean, we can feel it. It's, she's cold as fuck. Even when she, she finds out her son's dead, look at her reaction compared to her family's. I mean, she's just sitting there smoking and like waving at some random girl <laughs> in the street. You know, it's a very cold person. Um Maybe he had a right to call her a bitch, you know? Well, you know, on that note, a lot of the adults in this film have kind of um, like an inversion. Like all of the admired characters are actually really shallow. They don't offer anything of real import or substance, you know? And it's hard to tell because, <clears throat> look, I mean, even in the director's cut, Donnie seems like he might not be a reliable narrator. I mean, he has very flat affect. So you could still maybe... Like he's detached too. You could still probably make the argument that Donnie could be mentally ill and this could all be hallucinations, even given the information in the director's cut. I don't think that's a particularly interesting thing to go down and discuss, but like, I think that that's definitely there even with all of the added information in the director's cut. Um, but yeah, I mean, like it's one of the things that really stuck out to me in this movie is that the adults in this movie are just entirely, I'll say they're uninteresting, but they're, they're insanely shallow and attached to systems that are like dichotomous systems of black and white. I mean, we mentioned Dukakis, there, this is all over the movie. It's like Democrat, Republican, black, white, love, fear. There's this very simplistic game going on that I think Donnie is fighting against, which I find to be one of the more interesting parts of the film. And and Noah, that actually starts to sort of lead into one of the bigger criticisms, which again, I, I, and just full disclosure, I did not enjoy this film as much this most recent time around as I did previously. I, I was actually quite disappointed. It, it had been a while since I'd seen it. But one of the things that I that uh, again I thought I remembered was that like I thought I remembered every single character playing an important role in the in the time loop story and sort of putting Donnie where he needed to be in order for certain events to happen in order for that thing to resolve. Uh, and I realized that that was true of basically of all of the the the, the you know not the, the kids the the children his peers his friends his uh, his siblings, 
Um, but it's not true of any of the adults. I mean, you can base with the exception of Grandma Death and Noah Wiley, you can basically cut all of the adults out of the film, and the time loop part isn't affected by that anymore. Um, and that to me seemed like, you know, I mean, again, it's it's it's, uh, it's not that the, the characters were poorly done or uninteresting, um, but you know, when you have like you know Patrick Swayze's character was an obvious send up. Yeah, I saw there was people who tried to do that kind of thing in my high school, and yeah, they were pathetic and stupid. But it's so easy to mock them, right? I mean, it's just it's 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 so easy to to, to write a character about them who's sort of you know is pathetic and stupid and selling easy answers. Um, yeah, and that, so that's that's bad. That's uh, it's. I mean, it, you know, the, the people like that are bad, and it's easy to mock them. But you can remove them from the story, and that that again, what's what's awesome about it is this, this whole time loop story doesn't isn't affected at all. Yeah, you, you, you could you could go back and rewrite the script with the adult characters playing essential roles, and it would be a much tighter story. Uh, that I I mean. I both agree and disagree with that, Garrett. I I agree that for your central, if the if the central conflict of this film is uh, the time loop story, then sure, I see your point. But I also think that the central conflict of this film in the theatrical cut, as I understand it, is Donnie trying to find a thing worth fighting for and in order to get that get that uh narrative uh i i think then the adults become the antagonist in that narrative does that make sense i'm i'm don't know if i'm being totally articulate here but yeah uh, i mean if it's a story about high school and how it's difficult to be a high school student and uh you know parents just don't understand then yeah i think that, that it succeeds in all those levels but that story has very little intersection with the time loop story. I mean, you can sort of say either one of these are well done films, but they're almost you know, not not completely, but almost just two divorced little stories within the film. Yeah, but if I mean, if the film is. Yeah, parents don't understand you and high school sucks and the world is awful. In that case, fine, let it end. Um, in that case, you know, Frank's asking me to go, uh, traipsing about in the, uh, in the night. Fuck it, Frank. I'm going to sit around here and, uh, and smoke and take my benzos or whatever, uh, medicine and, and let the world end. But instead, um, he, I, I, I view the adults and the phoniness of the adults as an antagonist for Donnie that he has to go be that he has to uh fight against in order to then believe in a relationship with gretchen and that gretchen becomes a reason for saving the world and then once he figures out in the theatrical cut once he figures out that he has to uh shoot uh frank, frank. and then himself die in order for gretchen to live that would that then becomes the uh an animating force for him um that he then believes that the world is worth saving in a way so i i don't know if it's as simple as just remove the adults from the story and suddenly you've got like it with time travel um i i think there's a little bit more to it than that and a little bit more emotional di dynamics going on within donnie's character uh, that the adults are essential for. Does that make sense? 
Yeah, it does. But that, I mean, still seems to me to be more of a sort of a thematic or, if, if you will, a psychological connection between the stories rather than an actual plot driven one. You can have both of those, you know, you can have the, the, the theme and the psychology uh, and have the adults actually play an important role in putting uh, Donnie on the path that he needs to be on, not just in his own headspace, but in terms of being at a place at a time where an event happens you know, where that way they're, the characters are, aren't just, you know, interesting themes or an interesting analysis of, of, of you know, uh, young adulthood. It's an actual, you know, a tighter story, like I said. Yeah, I mean, I think I agree with Garrett that the weight, like the metaphysical weight of of what needs to happen in terms of the science-y, time travel-y stuff, let's, let's just say the insurance trap. Like the weight of what needs to happen for the insurance trap is really predicated on a particular subset of characters, he have more heavily than anyone else. Like the mom's not a huge part of that, for example. The English teacher is to a certain extent. Really, Garrett's right. I think it's the physics teacher, um, you know, and uh, it, so... But it's like, what's, what's that meme? Like, why not both, right? Like, why not both? Like, I, I think at the same time, though, the, 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 again, to me, the most interesting thing wasn't that time travel-y, science-y stuff. It was all the other, all the other stuff, the exploration stuff, which isn't really scary, right? So this is, I guess, considered a scary movie. It's considered a horror film, I think. Um, but um, didn't have some of the things that really scare me. It just, I, I found this film more interesting than spooky creepy it was it was definitely atmospheric i dig atmospheric films the music definitely made a, a good amount of this film but um at a certain point like the interest level that i had in the time travel these stuff sort of faded and at least in the director's cut director's cut's like two hours and 20, 15 minutes to something like that's really long um and so all of the other stuff the dialogue heavy pieces um the sort of struggle for authenticity that donnie has um like you know um struggling struggling against the institutionalized adult sort of um the caricatures of all of the adults that sort of stuff love versus fear all of that stuff sort of destroying as an act of creating there's some of that in this film those sorts of things were like all right i'm getting it it, it pulled me in more than the interest of uh the time travel the fear of what frank the bunny actually is and what's going on um and i like horror films that do that one of the things that you'll see that we've done a lot in this podcast is like the films that i noticed i think we all like have like a layer of fear to them they have some traditional set of horror things in them tropes characters villains all of that but they're really almost always about something else they tend to be more meaningful they tend to hit on something deeper about like human existence and our place here and some of the things we struggle with, whether they be social ails or the idea of dying or the idea of living forever even, right? So these these things that um, scare us beyond and beyond our flesh, like they're things that keep us up at night that are more than just, oh, there's a doll with a knife or something, you know? And I think this film has that to a certain extent, maybe not as heavy as some of the other films, but um, it does have some of those. So for example, when Shayra was watching it, this was Shayra's selection, um, you know, the 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 teacher, the traditional Catholic teacher, that's a pretty fucking scary character, right? Like, even for me, that wasn't like my mom. And that still is, like, for me, it was more frustrating than scary. But if you watch a film like It Follows, I have friends that go, this wasn't scary. And to me, it was terrifying for, you know, some of the same sort of reasons. The adults aren't present in that film. It's really, you're on your own. You're finding your way through adolescence, somewhat similar to this film, kind of in some ways, in the sense that, it's a trying time. It's sort of going through puberty and adolescence and fighting against, you know, the man, the system, all of that. Um, the other thing that this film reminded me of is excision. Remember, we did excision a few months ago. Mental illness, teenage years, uh, struggling through that. Parents not 
understanding that mental illness, learning to cope with it or take all of the appropriate measures to fix it. Um, felt a little bit of that in this movie too. Although excision is insanely graphic and very different than this. Anyway, so um, yeah, I, I, I don't want to get too bogged down in the sciency part of it, especially now that I know how heavy the distinction is between director's cut and theatrical. For me, it was really the other stuff that made me like this film. The atmospheric stuff was there cinematically, the music, um, but just the idea of exploring, you know, love versus fear. Guys, I know a life coach that teaches that, that teaches almost exactly the love versus fear distinction. Like I know the person who, who teaches this. And so for me, it was, that's, that's the scary part of Donnie Darko. Anyway, I'm off. I'm, I'm done with my, no, I, uh, I my agree. tangent. Like that, that is exactly the part that scared me the most, right? This, this very black and white thinking, um, or this idea, like when you grow up, you'll understand this. You just don't understand it now. And that is such a horse shit cop out thing that adults tend to say to us all the time. But this is prevalent throughout the film is adults telling the kids, oh, when you grow up, you'll get it. And it's like, bitch, I'm older than you in my mind because you have put yourself in this pocket for no reason. And I, and why? Why, why are you so cold and detached and unable to see the reality of how complex the world and universe is? And then you have this boy who has hardly lived on this earth, who's grasping these concepts that none of these adults have even thought to look into at any point in time. It's, that is actually what's truly frightening to me. And, and it's still something that's prevalent today. I mean, you know, I have a teenage daughter now and there's a lot of times where she's like, there are adults that don't understand this mom. And I'm like, I, I it's scary. It's, these are people that vote. These are people that drive on the roads <laughs> and they, and they don't grasp basic concepts of philosophy or understanding of humanity and complexity of life. They don't get it. And it so is when you talk to your daughter, you don't warn her about Jim Cunningham's three things, <laughs> alcohol, drugs, and premarital sex. You're telling me that you haven't raised her to have those as the three most dominant things to watch out for? Oh, man. You know, what's funny is we, we did watch it together. Um, she's seen it a couple of times because I own it on Blu-ray and I'm a kind of a dork about it. But anyway, um, like we've watched it a number of times and she's just like, every time we get to those parts <laughs> where, where they're discussing these things, she's like, oh, this is just reminding me when I was in school in Texas. Um, you know, that this is a lot of the, the jargon that they will shove down teenagers' throats. But if you look at the statistics of what's happening to teenagers in those areas where they're constantly shoving this idea down their throats, this is where teen pregnancies are the most prevalent. This is where people tend to binge drink more. This is where people tend to uh, experiment with drugs at younger ages. Um, they don't even realize that what they're trying to do is actually causing more of a problem. And that is one of the really key elements of Donnie Darko, I think. I mean, yeah, it's it's always been something that's part of life. And we could even say Rebel Without a Cause talks about some of these issues with teenagers. But um, when we have parents that are not attentive, uh, that are hyper-focused on their own situations... Um, but then on top of that are continuously saying, no, 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 no. And not enough, like, high five, good job on this. Um, positive reinforcement. Go ahead. I was just going to say, I, I think it really comes down to just being sold easy, easy answers for questions that are in exceedingly complex. You know, I mean, Donnie asks the, the deepest of all philosophical questions when he says, what's the point of living if you don't have a dick? That to me was just... 
the meat of the film, you know, pun intended. You know, that was that it's an important question. That, I wrote that down. It's <laughs> a line that needed to be a, yeah. Um, and a more recent film that explores all these themes. And I just have to tell everybody to watch this film. Eighth grade is one of the best films of the year. Um, I fucking love that movie. Uh, I went to go see that with my teenage daughter as well, and uh, it is very accurate to today and stuff teenagers deal with today. And yes, um, highly recommend as well. It's probably my favorite movie this whole year so far. So, um, but yeah, it, it's, the thing yeah. is, is, we went to the theater to go watch Eighth Grade, by the way, and almost all the people there were gray-haired old people, and the the audience was reacting with laughter and understanding, even though they're not part of that generation. And I think that's the important element to these movies about teenager life. Uh, we all can understand that struggle. We've all been there, you know. We've all been through that struggle. And when stories take the elements of puberty and trying to deal with bullies and parents and teachers and all of the stress of teenage life, um, it, it is a horror movie. It really, it, it is a horror show. And, and the eighth grade tries to take a comedic slant to it. But there are so many times where you actually saw people cringing in the audience. Just, oh, 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 oh. Even in the eighth grade, which is not a horror movie, but there were people um, reacting very strongly to many scenes in that film. Teenager life is a horror show. I mean, yes, really so is. many of our films have been, uh, yes. you know, around, around puberty. That's interesting, isn't it? A lot of them. Um, it's interesting also that, you know, it, it, given Jim Hunt Cunningham's, uh, I say prescriptions, but his his idea of like the, you know, alcohol, drugs, and premarital sex being the the things that you should watch out for. Those are all things that if you watch in the film, Donnie gives into. He gives into drugs. He gives into, at least in the, in the director's cut, gives into sex, gives into alcohol. And it ends up, I mean, some of that, like, for example, sex with Gretchen, Gretchen, I think. So some of those end up pushing him to save the world, right? So it has, it has that like fuck you to the sort of simplistic answers. It's the it's the thing that drives him to do the good deed, to sacrifice himself. It's sort of a big middle finger to simplistic answers um, for complex issues. It, that that the world is more complicated than just be entirely virtuous with a capital V and don't give in to any vice, you know. Yeah, and it's his love for Gretchen and his expression of that love, which then motivates him to eventually save the world in the theatrical cut. So I think that uh, I think you're right to uh, point to the relationship between Donnie's behavior and the uh, institutionalized asshole adults as as uh, one of the primary conflicts of the film, and then Gretchen as the sort of resolution of that. Yeah, you were gonna say, Garrett. Uh, no, I just I mean I'm. I'm... I agree with everything you're saying about this, the, the, these dynamics, and but I'm also just struck by the fact that when you had the first few times I saw the film, none of that is what stuck with me. I mean, I think all of that was what made the film engaging and relatable, but it wasn't what made it awesome. You know, what made it awesome to my mind again, the first couple of times I saw it was that sort of again, this really mysterious, like Sheriff said, this what the fuck is going on? There's something really weird going on here. What is it? It's like a mystery you're trying to figure out. 
Well, you're a, you're a philosophy professor. You give right. complex as part of your MO is to yeah. is to provide students with the ability to assess using the complexities of their cognitive faculties. That's the world you live in. Yeah. And I you know? and I love films that make me do that. And then this film doubled down on the ending of making you have to sort of redouble your efforts. And that was what was so awesome. But now I kind of feel. I mean, again, now with both with having researched it on the internet and seeing that the the uh, the director's cut. I come back to that and it's like, you know what? That's really not all that interesting. It's kind of like, uh, like Hannibal Rising, you know, like once you find out where Hannibal Lecter came from, he's no longer quite so exciting anymore. You know, it, it, it's what's so engaging about him is when you don't fully understand what's going on, when you get the full psychological portrait, it's like, oh, okay, well, that's actually kind of banal. Yeah, it's those, those goddamn midichlorians. Once you know what they are, that's it. That's it. <laughs> so are you telling us, Garrett, that all the things we ta we're talking about are very interesting and you'd like to see a movie about that? <laughs> no, no, I'm not saying that because I think this movie is about that. It's just that that isn't what made, again, to, to me 20 years ago, whatever it was when I first saw it, that wasn't what made it awesome. You know, that was what made it, that, that was what made it engaging and relatable. You know, that was a necessary groundwork, but it was the structure on top of it that really made it stand out. Um, and now going back to it, I don't think that structure stands up so well. Well, the, the, the funny thing that stood out to me, I had never studied free will versus determinism until Donnie Darko. That was the film that made me start looking into that concept because, you know, when this weird tube thing comes out of people and they're led and that's where they're going to go. I mean, when you see his, his sister skipping to my loo along the tube and you're like, what the fuck? is everything I do predetermined? What the fuck? And that was very frightening to me, honestly. And I, I'm sure because we've had so many conversations about this over the years now, maybe it's kind of boring, but that is a scary thing to come to a realization of is, is everything happening because it's going to happen no matter what I fucking do? That's scary. <laughs> that is yeah, scary. Time travel movies you know, often bring that up. And I think this film does that well. Um, I, don't, I don't mean to distract from that. I want to come back to it in more detail, but I, I do feel it's interesting to note that, that that basic technology, the effect, was it's the same effect that was used in the abyss. And like, you know, it was like, what was that? Uh, a little more, 13 years earlier, something like that. 13 years earlier, that was an incredibly expensive effect. It just cost a lot of money. And but you go flash forward 13, 14 years and you can put it in an indie budget film. It just shows how cool the computer technology gets, gets cheaper and cheaper and cheaper. And it makes you think about, you know, 13 years from now, what is it that indie filmmakers are going to be able to put in their films? I, I think that's actually a really good point to bring up. The, the fact where Donnie Darko came out, uh, there was a time where technology was really getting ahead for indie filmmakers and they really capitalized on that in this film and you know thinking back on the time that it came out it's it's huge what they did with a, a smaller budget you know uh, the tears for fears head over heels sequence is one of my favorite sequences in any film ever i think the only other one i really like is the ghost ship beginning i don't know if you guys have seen ghost ship but the beginning of that is so fucking amazing but i really love starts out all sideways they leap out of the bus out the back of the bus, by the way. And then, uh, you know, we meet every single character and see every part of who they are in just little snippets. And it is such a fantastic introduction of character, such a fantastic introduction of where we're going, what's going to happen, what to look out for. Um, and of course, it's a great soundtrack, but um, they did a lot with what they had for that time period and set a precedent, honestly, for a lot of films 
after that. I mean, a lot of people were like, okay, I got to step up my fucking game. <laughs> we can do some amazing graphics. We can do some amazing music. We can do some amazing montage. And so, um, yeah, it's, I think that's a really important point to make is the tube thing was, was, uh, something that indie people could do now. It's like, all right, bitch, step up your game. <laughs> We're going in. It's good stuff. But isn't it also like a tool that's just very blunt? It's like, okay, go here now. Like, here's here's the path that you need to go down. And it's almost like saves time, saves effort, saves effort. You know what I mean? Like, I I did it didn't bother me, but I was like, what? Why am? What's this? Is very it's a blunt instrument to be like, go here and do this. Do you know what I mean? I don't know. Maybe I mean, I'm just being super nitpicky. So um, is that? Wait, are you re? How are you reading that, Noah? Are you reading that as like Frank or mysticism or? whatever the fuck else. So that's the question, right? Like that's that's something that's up for debate here is what's behind that? Is it God? There's some religious symbolism in here and some- The you know, Jesus there, analogies are definitely there. Yeah, there's, there's the idea here that something is doing all of this, right? Um, think of the scene where Donnie is talking to his um, shit is, I think it's his, physics professor and he says and i have the actually i have the line here right in my notes donnie says to him hey if you could see your path through your channel then you could see into the future right he's talking about time travel and his physics teacher says if you could see your destiny then we would be given the choice to betray our chosen destinies and the mere fact that this choice exists would make all preformed destiny come to an end right and donnie says not if you travel within god's channel so what i what i found interesting about that was the i well there's a, a lot of ways that we can sort of trail that out. But um, one of the, I mean, it it certainly paints the image that something is in control and that, you know, are you, are you really free if you, if something is, is um, if something is creating the meta narrative on top of the meta narrative, making all of this happen, are you free? But then if you decide to choose the same thing that God would have you choose, are you then not free? It was, you know, this was one of those interesting things to me. And this is where Garrett is going to be like, oh my God, this is like undergraduate philosophy. Like, but to me, I found it to be insane, like a, just an interesting thought. So anyway, I, I don't mean to go off on, a, on another tangent, Jim, but I, it, I took it to be there's something, mysticism, God, something in control, something personal that wants the universe to not collapse that is making all of this happen. And one of those little abyss things was a tool. Yeah, I actually, one, one of the things which stuck out to me the most, and again, it was scarier to me this time around than definitely the first time, it's when, when Noah Wiley's character says right after the not if you travel within God's channel, he says, I can't continue this conversation. It might cost me my job. It's like, yeah, I can, I can, I, I empathize with him a lot more this time around in that position now that I am a teacher myself, so... Yeah. Honestly, I think a lot of teachers might find some fear from this movie. I mean, it, it just reading Graham Greene costs somebody their job, you know, and, and uh, just introducing ideas and literature to kids could possibly lose you your job if, if the right zealot gets behind, like, blaming you for some kind of random occurrence. And this is actually a thing that is legit fear-inducing for a lot of my friends who are teachers. I mean, they're fighting constantly to be able to teach their students things that they need to know, but the parents don't want them to know things and like who wins in that battle the teacher or the parent like who decides what children get to know I, it depends upon that as as a teacher uh, one of the other teachers in the podcast it sort of depends upon the the framework in university we generally don't have too many problems with that but 
in uh, public schools, they certainly do. Uh, there was actually a question in the chat that uh, that brought up the school scene. I want to see if I can find it. Uh, what do you guys make of the assessment of Donnie being the only one to think of a reason why they would burn the money in the English class? They just wanted to know what happened when they tore the world apart. Basically, the the fact that Donnie's the only one who are who's able to to interpret the story in a uh, a logical and uh, textually based way. Um, I think that that's, that's sort of going along with some of the, the arguments that I've been making about Donnie's character arc in this film, about how he uh, learns that it's, that the world is worth saving to some degree, if only for Gretchen's sake. But uh, yeah, I, I, I think it goes back to the Christ narrative. I think that that's sort of like his unique knowledge. His, you know, the the fact that um, that there's a uh, shit. What was I going to say? Like, uh, remember when Don it's? I think it's in uh, around that same time where Donnie's giving his essay, and it's very prophetic, sort of Christ-like. He says something like, "I'll deliver." I'll deliver children back to the doorsteps. I'll fight off the monsters and put them back to the underground or something. Um, I think I get to listen to that story. Yeah. Oh my God. Oh my God. I got to watch this theatrical. Literally everything I've said, I feel like was only in the director's cut. I feel like such a tool for not um, seeing the, the monumental distinction between these two versions, something I will not mistake going forward ever again. But yeah, I, to me, I felt like that served maybe more of the Christ narrative function that Donnie has unique knowledge and is able to transcend these sort of, you know, um, very basic systems to a certain degree. Anyway, that's the way, that's the way I took that. Yeah, I think that's, I think that's very logical. I think that, that makes a lot of sense to me too. Hey, hey, what was the, what was uh, grandma death? What was her name? Do you guys remember her name? Something Sparrow. Sparrow. Uh, R Sparrow. Uh, Roberta Sparrow. Roberta, yeah. Okay, yeah, I know it was R. I was like, rawr, rawr. So, so there's, yeah, yeah, rawr, rawr, Sparrow. Uh, so, it, uh, so there's a weird, so one of my favorite episodes of Doctor Who is an episode called Blink, and it's about time travel, and the character's name on there is um, Sally Sparrow. And I was thinking, like, there's got to, there's something with sparrows and like time travel here. I put it in my notes as some weird, funky thing. I was like, there's Sally Sparrow. There's a, uh, novel, uh, a Maria Doria Russell novel called The Sparrow, which is about inner stellar travel not time travel but it's it's really good and that's what i thought of whenever when i saw her name interesting probably connections and that people are are giving their nerd cred out there for certain people <laughs> <laughs> like hey <laughs> but like uh, the thing is is uh when it comes to what the teachers were trying to teach one of the um main things that came up was watership down and so i watched that again this weekend because I was like, maybe there's something to this that I need to look in more in depth to further understand Darnie Darko. And of course, uh, Frank was in Watership Down. I mean, you have this, you know, this dark bunny that is kind of leading the way the whole entire time uh, throughout the, the film of Watership Down in the story. Uh, the bunnies are following this dark bunny character that's, you know, leading the way. And I feel like that's Frank. Um, but also this idea that things are just, there is human beings existing on the planet doing things all the time and we are going to be subject to whatever they're doing. We don't really get to have a choice about what they're doing. Um, this, this is the Jonah fear right there. If you could right. sum up our other co-host Jonah, that's his, that's his fear. It's a big fear. And, and that's very prevalent in this. 
I don't know if you guys noticed all the other little bunnies that are sort of seated throughout the film. I mean, like there's the Echo and the Bunny Men song at the beginning. Um, there, there's there's sort of a stuffed bunny in, in the sister's uh, uh, couch or something like that. You know, there's just here and there, there's all these little little bunnies seated. It's a nice little touch. Yeah, we can probably even think of Frank as kind of uh, the, the white rabbit taking Alice down the hole, like into this new world, this new, you know what I mean? You, you could kind of play that a little bit too. Um, yeah, there, there were a lot of bunnies all over this film. Yeah, there's, but the thing is, is uh, the, the main underlying theme from Watership Down with all the bunnies is that um, we're going to be moved to places. Uh, and, and that is the, there's a survival element. We have to survive. We have to survive. How are we going to survive? We have to keep moving. We have to go to these places and, and escape all of these predators. And uh, maybe eventually we'll get to this place where we don't have to uh, worry about survival so much. And um, I think that's why when we get near the end, Donnie realizes that his English teachers taught him exactly what to do, right? So he gets these like, ah, yeah, I mean, of course she's right. And then is laughing uh, when he's laying in bed. Um, it's, it's those it's, fucking manipulated living, man. Got to watch out for him. <laughs> but it's so great because it, it makes me feel like, you know, a lot of teachers feel like they don't really have, um, they don't have much of a say of what a student's going to be going to do. But you know that your students, once they learn something from you, there are students year or two later on, they're going to be like, oh, that mother, that motherfucker. When I read that book and he said that thing, oh shit. And, and it happens to all of us students when our teacher hit the nail on the head with something and we go back and we're like, they planted a fucking seed. Oh my God. They, they knew. Um, and I feel like that is a lot of what Donnie's laughing through is that his teacher, which drew very more, I think is a super important character in this film. Um, she is initially, she just is like, okay, yeah. Uh, Gretchen sit next to the boy you think is the hottest or the cutest or whatever. I mean, that is not a normal thing to, <laughs> to randomly say. She's kind of, they, they immediately show that she's a character that's not going to be like the others. And she goes with that the whole entire time. But she, she teaches him so much. I think she's actually more of an important character than his mom or dad. Yeah, I, I, and she, the fact that she gets fired is is significant too. Anyway, go ahead. I'm sorry. Okay, granted, it's the 80s, but that's heteronormative as fuck, and it really bothered me actually. <laughs> I, yeah, and you know, those things pop up like when we watch Friends, we're like, ah, Oh, the times. But I mean, it still was really funny because she just watched her and then she was like, uh, this chick, get up. And she's going to sit there. She could tell where she was looking. So, um, but it's, it is definitely something where you can tell that there's something unique about that teacher and she actually does care, but she's weird. And that was actually a huge element, a huge theme of the whole entire film as well is weird is good even when Gretchen is talking to Donnie, she's like, you're weird. And he's like, oh, I'm sorry. And she's like, no, that's, that's good. I like weird. Um, and this was, this is probably like a all encompassing theme today. You know, 2018 is around and weird is good now, but back in the day, weird was not considered as good. You were a nerd or a geek or a little odd. It was uh, uncomfortable for most people, but now we look at weird and we're like, oh, that's, yeah, you're, you're quirky. <laughs> you know, it's, it's more positive. So uh, I want kind of want to want to turn on that a little bit because um, I mean you know, Jim has sort of come, stated several times that uh, um, uh, Gretchen sort of becomes Donnie's sort of reason for saving the universe, which is I think a a, a fair read. Um, but I mean, okay, yeah, feminist analysis time again, since we always have to do the feminist analysis. Let's put on the feminist lens. Um, Donnie's a fucking dick. 
I I I I can sort of I see why Donnie likes Gretchen. I'm not sure I see why Gretchen likes Donnie. I he's 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 kind of a jerk and an asshole. Tells his calls his mom a bitch. He starts masturbating in front of his therapist. Um, I mean, he nominally. To be fair, he was actually. Uh, a We've all been there, Garrett. We've all been there. <laughs> well, so, yeah, she's clearly I, I, broken. She's broken, Garrett. It, I mean, one. it it. It comes as no surprise that this film is written by a man, um, and it has the, the 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 female character fall for the male lead in an inexplicable, ooh, he's dark and broody kind of you know a way. Now again, high school sometimes that's kind of a level of immaturity that's that's realistic and you can find. But I don't know. I, it, it would have been nice to have seen her exist more for her own right rather than just as a reason for Donnie to save the universe. But she's not the only girl who fell for Donnie. And the the main girl, the main girl that always stuck out to me was Charita. He stood up for her against the bullies. He, he stood up for her when nobody else would. And she fell in love with him. I mean, she was writing his name all over her notebook. And he actually ends up like, he's like, no, you're going to get past this. You're better than these people, you know? And um, he is a dark and fucked up person, but he sees things and he sees the beauty and things that people don't see the beauty in. And I think that's what these people are drawn to is his perspective, not necessarily his tact, but his perspective is very unique compared to the other characters who are very shallow um, and very just disgusting, actually. And, you know, the drug use fine, but if you layer that on with the bullies, just they're, gross like like uh like filth is the best word i can think of yeah he's better than seth rogan's character that's that's a gimme but i don't know if that's necessarily enough to like endorse him as 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 a person who is worthy of you know love and the love and affection that gretchen gives him which is supposed to be what makes the universe worth saving right i mean i i i do want to paint the bas relief of this this universe like the kids are race all the other kids there are racist some of them are snorting coke uh they're all misogynistic except for and and donnie's donnie's not exempt from that that's all of that is certainly true but there's one scene what is the scene um so they run out into the they run out of the school and then she kisses him for the first time and he like as i recall he does something noble to uh to uh you know express an affection toward her and i i can't remember exactly what the action is but i mean you're not wrong but uh you're not i see your comment in the chat noah that's hilarious i'm sorry uh, but the the point so for the viewers this is what noah typed while i was talking and trying to uh struggle through a point you've never snorted coke off your therapist's ass post masturbation come on guys um so anyway that's why i lost my train of thought but the point is is that i do think that there's there by and large you're absolutely right Donnie's not only an asshole, but he's also a, you know, 15-year-old boy who is a special blend of asshole. But there's some redeeming qualities that he has as he uh, as as the relationship progresses. His he does hair, treat her with hair. some kindness that the the other characters seem not capable of doing. Yeah, he's all ears. He's he's a listener. He's all ears. You know. <laughs> yeah, absolutely. 
I don't know. I, I feel like, look, if I was talking to a girl in high school and I overheard her conversation about Smurfs and, you know, gangbanging and all of that, that entire conversation, I just, I'd fall. It wouldn't matter how the person looked like. I'd be like, I am into you because that is an interesting conversation we need to explore. He did. He did actually have some really interesting insight on Smurf. Uh, Smurf it would be lack of sex, I guess. But yeah, yeah. Um, how Smurf Smurfs sexual are. Dynamic. Yeah, yeah the, the way that they're created. But um, I think I think it is hard. I understand where you're coming from, Garrett. It's hard because, yeah, the other characters are super disgusting. And that doesn't mean that Donnie's not disgusting. But the fact that those characters are so disgusting and so deplorable, like he's able to say, hey, that's not OK. And that makes him a hero in their eyes. And you can see how someone might start to fall for someone like for instance, when Seth Rogen is talking about her boobs and she's like, oh, my God, I need saved. And she's like, can you walk me home? And he's like, yeah. And he didn't do that to her. I mean, he did ask her out, but they had a nice conversation beforehand. and He wasn't being creepy. And maybe that is a horrible thing, but it is actually a real thing that happens when you're surrounded by disgusting people. Maybe the less disgusting person might seem like uh, a good pick of the litter. <laughs> You know. Yeah, yeah. I mean, it's not that the that kind of level of disgustingness is unrealistic from high school boys. It certainly isn't. But it's also at the same time, it's kind of cheap and easy, right? You want to make your hero look good, contrast him with these these, these utterly repul repellent figures, um, and you know, you automatically get some brownie points just by by uh, by contraposting, and that's just by not you know, being absolutely not disgusting. <laughs> You're not wrong, but does that make the relationship, does that make the film just not work for you, Garrett? No, I wouldn't say that, but I think it weakens it. You know what I mean? Again, it, sure. The film, I think, would have been stronger or better if, I mean, again, I don't want him to be a Mary Sue. I want him to have flaws and shortcomings, um, but I, you know, I, I would, I would have liked it better if their relationship felt like it was... Uh, more of an equal one, um, like like her character existed for its own sake, I mean, rather than just as a, a, a sort of a path for redemption for him. Um, and I I didn't quite feel that. I felt like I mean, it felt like a man writing a teenage, you know, a, a tw late twenties, early thirties something man writing a high school girl, um, not uncharitably, but just not with the sort of the full uh, rapport that you need to really make that work. Well, Not the the other thing we have to throw in there is her background is that she has had to change her name recently. Uh, she has a, a father figure that's trying to murder her and her mom. I mean, she's in a really fucked up situation as is. Um, he probably would seem like just the greatest thing in the world, honestly. Um, yeah, and, and I, I know that looking from our perspective, we're like, ugh. But having been around a lot of high school boys and teams like that are male, it's like, he's not that bad. I was, gonna, I, I was gonna say one of the recent comments in our chat was from Heathen, uh, well, to be honest, the figures in the film weren't even very repugnant compared to real high schools. So. That's fair, that's fair. Other figures, was that? Or... Uh, the figures, no, the fig oh, figures. Just, yeah, yeah, the, the characters, okay. yeah. I totally read that, I saw that comment too, and I, I guess I read it wrong, because uh, I, I saw Father Figure, you're right, okay, my bad. I mean, when you're, when you're su surrounded by really toxic people, maybe not that toxic looks pretty fantastic. And I mean, I guess that's kind of realistic, but is that really something we should aspire to? Or is the movie even trying to say that that's a relationship to aspire to? Um, 
I don't know. I mean, but I will say consensual sex happens, so that's cool. <laughs> I think the best that can be said about that relationship is that it's true to what high school relationships are probably that's probably the best that could be said for it um i certainly don't think that it's an aspirational relationship um at least i would hope not um and so in that sense i think garrett's point is well taken um although i'm a bit more of a donnie apologist than than garrett is i think uh but i'm certainly on that on the spectrum that garrett is uh garrett's um leading us down um right abyss-like, so to speak. Um, so, yeah, I'll, I'll, yeah, I agree it's not, asp the film isn't asking us to aspire to the relationship, it's not presenting it as, as sort of like a healthy or a good one. I mean, the, the film is partially about mental illness and so that, that that's not uh, unsurprising. Well, but let me ask you this, having seen the movie, if you had to write a sequel that focused on Gretchen's character, do you think you could do it without having to construct her, you know, large elements of her character from your own imagination? Do you think it's there on the screen that that you could just run with that character? I don't think I could. I mean, she, she's she's not completely without depth or dimension, but she's nowhere near as well fleshed out as Donnie is. Yeah, yeah. Well, I, agree. I think I agree. That her character giving... is is hugely on the whole entire Watership Down situation, though. She's a survival person that's what a lot of these characters are doing is just trying to survive whether it be survive their teenage years or whether they're trying to survive adulthood um a lot of the elements and the themes are about survival and i think her main drive is to survive and that's the main reason why she even talks to donnie um i mean she initially looks at him and thinks he's cute whatever that's nothing but the reason why she actually reaches out and talks to him is survival. A survival element is in there. There's these predatory, disgusting creatures preying on her. And she's like, hey, walk me home, please. And so every element of her character is a survival character. And yeah, that may not be a lot of depth, but that is something that is a driving force that gets us to the end of the film. And that's where her character is, 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 is driving it in a certain direction of survival. Yeah. So someone, some, someone in the chat says, uh, Great Chaos says, does she even need depth if according to the lore of the film she only exists as a catalyst for donnie to make his sacrifice yeah and and again it's there's an internal logic there but i mean if we're doing it as a feminist analysis that's something it, it, it ir it's irksome because movies do that all the fucking time they just invent female characters in order to be foils for the male characters and that's just it's 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 frustrating to see that happen over and over and over again even if an individual instance of it might make sense Right. So your 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 criticism is both with the film, but also with the industry writ, writ large. And that's that's fair. I mean, I would sort of push back against the the idea that these that supporting characters don't need to have depth because supporting character movies are so much better when supporting characters do have depth. I mean, the one the line that the the moment that I go back to all the time to prove this point is Return of the Jedi. When after Luke kills the big monster, there's another guy who sees the big monster dead and he starts crying. Well, first of all, we're probably gonna get a solo movie about that guy. But second of all, that is like that that moment is absolutely incredible to me and it fleshes out this world. Um to some degree, as much as the mythos behind Donnie Darko is is extensive, the characters and the mythos of the world seem to be 
only feeding into one one or two storylines with three or four themes without real character identity behind each of these each of these characters and so that that's i i take your criticism garrett and and i think that um i i still recommend the film it's still a it's still a um a higher ranking on my my five star scale but i I, I think your criticisms are valid um, and that the film, instead of, if they're not valid, then there's certainly a way to make the film stronger. Well, especially since Gretchen is, well, let's say not just a catalyst, but she is the object to which Donnie is willing to sacrifice his own life for all of reality. So. Right. And I think, I mean, when Gretchen dies, I didn't, at least this time around, I can't remember I felt the first time, but I didn't feel a whole lot of pathos, you know? I wasn't shocked. You know, you know that a relationship is done well if, you know, one of the characters dies and it breaks your heart too. If you feel what the filmmaker wanted, you know, Donnie to be feeling, you know, if, if, if you had that connection, if it worked, that's that's a sign that it's successful. And maybe it worked for some people. Again, obviously, it's just my reaction, but my reaction when she died, I didn't really feel a whole lot. I felt it was kind of forced and artificial. I didn't, you know, I didn't feel there was a whole lot compelling her to die in the story. And it didn't feel like the relationship there was powerful enough to really hit me in the gut the way it could have. Again, if the movie had been done slightly differently, it, it could have succeeded on that front. A, a recent film that we could maybe distinguish, sorry, I'll let you finish in a second, Jim. The, the, a recent film that we could distinguish that had that, that we discussed recently was Train to Busan. One of the things that our conversation that we had on that film in our recent podcast made me realize is the, is the the depth of the side characters in at least that uh, that film, that Korean cinema. I, I, I don't know enough about Korean cinema. This is going to be Shayra's area where um, there's an investment in those sorts of characters such that when they die, especially in a zombie film, usually in a zombie film, as we discussed in Train to Busan, like when characters die, it's ironicized. It's There's really no grief. It's one of the things Ben Carruth touched on that really hit me is in Western zombie films, when there's a death, it's it's typically not felt. It's 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 funny. There's there, there's there's ways that we do it that um, don't make it that don't make the grief very real. We're we're not good at grief in zombie films. Whereas um, Train to Busan has that in a lot of the side characters, the the characters who are not you know the main two people in the film. So maybe a recent film that has good uh, character development with side characters is uh, is Train to Busan. So I would maybe contrast it with that sort of film. I don't know. It's just a recent one we did. And honestly, that's one of the reasons why I do categorize Donnie Darko as a horror film, especially a Western one. There is, I mean, Donnie dies. I didn't feel sad. <laughs> you know, the main character dies at the end and I'm just like, yeah, that's interesting. All right. Yeah. You do, you do you. Um, but like, you know, it's, uh, it tries to paint it as sad, but it's not sad because he died. The, the sadness is within the characters who have a ghost left behind from the, the tangent that they were on. The, the tangent timeline, it fucked them up. And they're still feeling the residual shit from that. Um, you know, they're, they're all contemplating something they lived through that they don't remember. But they kind of do. That is actually something super dark. And I know that a lot of people can actually relate to that. Where there's times where you just get really sad and you're like what the fuck just happened maybe we went on a tangent timeline <laughs> and, yeah you know and it's, you're uh, moving through it <laughs> you know it's interesting Cher. i didn't really consider that but i'm i'm right there with you i um i didn't even write any notes about that but you're right when when uh when donnie dies it's it's not uh it, it didn't sting which is interesting, especially since I gave two hours and what eighteen minutes of my time to this this character. I, I, I didn't I didn't feel it. It's very interesting. Um, 
I'm not entirely sure why. I'd have to explore that. But I mean, I think, think about the, it. It's about the characters and how yeah, they were yeah. affected. Not well. It's a character-heavy film too. I mean, there's. Yeah, I'd have to think about that a little more. Well, can I can I uh, can I give you a a? I don't want to tell you your emotions. Oh my God! Please do. I'm getting. I got to. I'm getting the coke that. ready to snort right off your ass crack. Let's do I'm this. I'm gonna try anyway. Oh, you're gonna snort. Wow, that's an image, folks. Um. <laughs> Uh, but I think that Donnie's death becomes a redemption for the entire universe. It, it, it yeah. has a purpose, you know, and I think that um, there's a poetic justice to Donnie's death. Even though the characters in the film are sad, we're not sad because we understand that it, it served a redemptive purpose. And in that sense, it, takes a uh, for me it's it that's one of the reasons why i didn't feel something when donnie died and i wonder if that's that might be the same case for you it might not be um i'm not telling you your emotions today no but that's accurate it's uh it's okay that he died because it did something it, you're sad for all the characters who are affected by the situation um even if they don't remember it um and that is actually the huge impact and this is you know the whole it's a wonderful life kind of situation like what impact you actually have on the universe even if it's for a short time period how much do you affect the people that you run into and how much have your choices affected them even if those choices are on a timeline they can't remember you know how how much have you affected others right yeah. and i think i think that's that's what's really interesting about the film is that the, what we have here is on its surface a senseless death a plane engine from fuck knows where crashed into a house and killed a man or killed a boy like that is the definition of act of god crazy uh senseless death and yet the film gives us context of how that death actually saved the universe you know from from whatever uh, apocalyptic uh, prophecy was being was being proffered here, so in, in that way, I think it strips the emotional impact of that. It doesn't strip the emotional impact. It's, it makes me not sad. It makes me it, it makes me see a kind of justice in a thing that, on its surface, is incredibly senseless. Mm. Well, so the additional information piece is interesting because, you know, I, I, I don't think that, I don't think, mm, I'm not sure if that was it for me. I mean, I, I'm trying to think of in a, a movie in which having the additional information of seeing the sort of larger picture, given the context of the main character's death, made it uh, less, um, less emotional. I, I'm, I'm, you're, you may be right, because I'm hard-pressed to think of one, but, um, you know, so let me push back this way. Um, you know, I, I feel like I should have felt more for Donnie's death, given that his death essentially propped up the sort of world of the institutionalized adult to a large extent. In other words, the things that in the tangent universe he was fighting against, the things that he battled against, um, he saved, right? To, to a certain extent, which to me should have been more of a tragedy. Right? Well, like, he, he saved her, right? I mean, I think that sort of was the, was the principal takeaway for him as he saves Gretchen. Yes. Um, I think so from his own psychological point of view, I think uh, Jim is right. That is sort of the key thing. Yeah. Um, I mean, he's same... go ahead. Go ahead. At, at the same time, I kind of, against uh, other like little things I wish the film had done differently. I mean, he's told by Frank toward the beginning of the film, that the world's going to end in 28 days. And he basically goes about living his life exactly the same way as he was before. 
Um, this news has no real impact on him. It doesn't alter his behavior. He doesn't wrestle with, you know, should I do something about this? Should I try to save the universe? Can I save the universe? That basically never really enters into his consciousness at all. So, I mean, it, it kind of seems like he just wrote off what Frank was saying about the end of the universe, like he just didn't believe it. Um, yeah. And I don't know. I, I but mean, he thought he was he, nuts, too. I mean, he was given medication. He's been told that he has schizophrenia by everybody around him. His parents are consistently telling him that he has something wrong with him. So he's probably just like, ah, I'm crazy. <laughs> and, and that makes sense. So it's not it's, it's not that this is like, you know, a, a like stupid or anything like that. I just I think that the film might have been more engaging if you know he was trying to i mean like like think about like 12 monkeys right there's a movie where the end of the world is, is is coming they know it they're trying to stop it can they stop it that's there's a lot of drama in that film because of all of that and something like that i think could have been internally playing with donnie you think it doesn't have to necessarily be explicit but it's somehow it could have been put out there um that maybe he doesn't care or he's trying to figure out if he should care if the world ends or you know if he's just crazy you know that 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 would have been drama would have been a lot more compelling if it had had more traction yeah you're i think yeah. you're right like the the magnitude <clears throat> excuse me the magnitude of the situation should have been more palatable for the, i think a moviegoer watching donnie conflict with that i think would have helped i think a lot I mean, it would it certainly would have made me feel more emotionally connected to donnie darko at least you know but there's an element to him not being that way that's important because a lot of what the, the adult world is trying to tell him he needs to do is have this pure way of doing things and being and thinking. And he has to be all these things. And he's like, no, fuck you. Um, so it's almost great that he, he gets to be the savior, even though he's just a punk ass kid who's a piece of shit. And he's like laughing his ass off. Like, wow, I, I'm the savior. Like, I, fuck. There's a kind of nihilism to him, and then, and again, that that's interesting on film. But uh, you know, again, it, it would have again, it would have been more interesting. It's not if, powerful when he dies, though. <laughs> yeah, if he was wrestling with that nihilism, if if, if that nihilism was you know, a source of conflict for him, it could have been a source of conflict for the story, and hence made it more interesting. Yeah, do you guys have anything else you guys want to add? Any other any other um, roads we should go down with Don? I feel like we could just do this all night. Like, there's so many things we could talk about. Is there any one that stands out that you guys want to hit before this ends at some point? Anything um, else? Well, as far as the Jesus structure, the Jesus analogy, um, I, I've seen people try to analyze him as a Jesus-type character. Um, you know, where Charita is an angel, where she's, you know, she actually dances as an angel on the stage, but she's a, a kind of angel that, that leads him on his path where he needs to go. Um, and other random things that people have inputted. I, I kind of find it ridiculous, <laughs> but he does have the sacrificial thing. So there might be some Jesus elements, but I mean, shit, you even watch movies like Superman and there's, you know, some Jesus analogies in there. Um, do you guys see the the Jesus analogy as being something that's prevalent, or is this just like a, a, a repeated story that just seems to be ingrained in a lot of stories now? Yeah, I mean, G well, Jesus does sort of follow the canonical, you know, hero with a thousand faces, Joseph Campbell arc in a lot of ways. Maybe not point note for note, but in a, a lot of them. So it, it could be just similarities there. Weren't they watching The Last Temptation of Christ at the movie theater? No, they're no, watching, they're watching uh, Evil Dead. He fell yeah, asleep. Uh, no, but isn't no, but hold hold, hold on. Is it playing? Yeah, that's right. Okay, so there, there's they some of them watching it though. 
Yeah, that's right. They weren't watching it. Yeah, it was. Yeah, it was playing. Evil Dead's story. much better. They're just gonna. Sorry. Interesting side note is that they, uh, the the filmmakers wanted to get the movie Chud for for the film that they were making, but they couldn't figure out the rights situations. So Sam Raimi actually said, "You can use Evil Dead for free." And that's that's awesome. why they used Evil Dead. Good guy, that's Sam. Awesome. That is awesome. <laughs> Drag me to hell. <laughs> we gotta, we gotta analyze that. <laughs> I uh, what really quickly, I saw that in Hollywood two months ago with some of the actors and the sound guys. Um, you know the guy that plays the uh, in uh, Drag Me to Hell, the guy that plays the, he runs the psychic shop and he helps the woman. Uh, like he's the, um, he's like the only ethnic guy like in the whole film. Like he's the guy that ends up doing all the work to help her uh, catch the demon and uh, or have her not be dragged to, drugged to hell. Um, he was there. I got to meet him and I got to meet all the sound people. Anyway, I totally nerded out. It's one of my favorite horror films. I didn't put it on our list, by the way, like our list of films to review because like it's it's the typical Sam Raimi sort of slapstick, almost like Buster Keaton sort of horror. Weird. Like I, I I feel like we would just sit here and laugh at all of the funny scenes. There wouldn't be much meat on the bone. So I've been debating. Do you, I don't I'll just ask you while we're live. Do you think we should add that as a movie to discuss or do you think that it's just we're just going to just get like hammered and be like, that was the best scene ever with the anvil. Is that like how far we would go with dragon? I mean, on? sure. Like I'll watch it. <laughs> it's all enjoyment. But, I think, uh, like, how, about we, how about we put that up for a uh, poll in the chat and see what, uh, yeah. find it. out if people want to do drag me to hell. And also, do you want to see some footage of me and my husband and friends going to see evil dead, the musical on stage uh, coming up in a couple weeks? We're going to go. I don't know. How much we so, can take pictures of, but <laughs> so question question one: Should we do Drag Me to Hell? Yeah. Uh, question two: Do you want to see Shayra go see Evil Dead live on stage? We are planning on going Meanwhile. in the splatter zone. Oh, yeah. <laughs> splatter zone, no less. Although on, on stage, I don't know how much. Yeah, you're right. You, I don't know how much uh, photography you could do. But anyway, <laughs> um, yeah. So that's question one and question two. Uh, we'll see what uh, the chat has to say. I'm definitely a yes for two. I'm, I'm, I am down for two. I would love to see Shayra just get splattered with blood on the Evil Dead musical. That I'm would planning on wearing all white so that, you know. Perfect. Oh, God, that's so uh, good. So there you go, chat. Chat people. <laughs> yeah. uh, we, will, we will collect the results after we talk about existentialism. Um, <laughs> I was wondering... <laughs> I was wondering, like, so there's some films, like, I'm, I'm thinking, for example, of Gran Torino, which combines both Christ imagery and an existentialist theme um, in the film. And there's, there's sort of, a, there's a nice little Venn diagram of existentialism and um, Christianity uh, that, that Garrett will tell me all about uh, uh, as the the philosophy professor that he is. But did you guys see any sort of existentialist themes in this? I did a little bit, but uh, I want to open that conversation up and before it, I talk. I mean, free will is a topic existentialism is going to come up. I mean, yeah. existentialism is, 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 you know, Sartre and existentialism at least is very much committed to a kind of radical freedom. Uh, and that's somewhat being challenged both by the time loop and by the, the 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 time tunnels that you have going through. So yeah, there's definitely uh, existentialist. Garrett, did you did you did you feel like there were any absurdist elements of this film at all? Um, well, in some ways, I, I I felt that Jim Cunningham was kind of absurd in, in in the sense that he was just sort of over the top in terms of you know a, a caricature of of real people, but but so preposterous. Um, 
that it's, you know, it's a little hard to believe that anyone would actually buy into that bullshit. Um, oh, they um, do. Oh, yeah, they, they do. do. Right. <laughs> Obviously. So that's why it's, it's, it's not completely absurd. Yeah. It, 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 it's, it's sort of flirting in that direction in some ways. Um, he helped a boy stop peeing the bed. Okay. <laughs> that's what's important. And is that the boy he patted on 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 the boy's ass in the in his video? <laughs> I mean, so. catch it, that video subtle. was fantastic, by the way. That is exactly yeah. the videos we used to watch in school. <laughs> How bad would it be if they played that at Patrick Swayze's funeral? Just that video, like that would have been so terrible. I'm sorry, that's rude. Too soon. I'm sorry. Too soon. <laughs> that is so wrong. <laughs> Sorry, that's that's awful, Noah, and I'm going to get us back on track Um, a little bit, maybe, I don't know. Uh, So I think because Donnie doesn't really know how everything's going to shake out, it's pulling back from his sense of free will, and so there's ways in which that makes him not the, the typical existentialist hero. Uh, because he doesn't really like the final scene is 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 not something that he's going into willingly with all of the knowledge that he is going to in fact have to both sacrifice his life and kill another person and therefore um, his existentialist heroism is uh, is is less poignant and less um less at the fore does that make sense so i think the film is less existentialist than it wants to be that's what i'm trying to say i mean i think that you know the the film has a kind of fatalist element to it i mean you, you sort of get the idea that uh one way or the other donnie was going is destined to end up back in his room he's destined to die you know if there's any question at all it's whether or not he understands why whether or not he accepts it um but uh, I, I mean, I, I see a fatalist line running through, which you know is anti-existentialist in that you know again, you know, in the Sartrean sense, um, uh, it, it's denying his radical freedom. Um, but you know, you can have existentialist themes that are challenging existentialist values or, or, or existentialist psychology. So I still say I would still say it's 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 a legitimate existential uh you know layer to the to the film even if it's not one that endorses existentialist approaches to free will i don't know if anybody else took this away from the film but this is something that i thought about while showering after watching it uh you know when you get in the shower and you start having those deep shower thoughts um he sleepwalks multiple times in the beginning before uh being on this tangent timeline has he been on other tangent timelines and in those tangent timelines has he chosen not to sacrifice himself has somebody else sacrificed themselves and he happens to be a frank type character on those timelines like is he time traveling when he's sleepwalking how does all of that work because there are multiple times where he like he woke up on the golf course and uh you know jim cunningham and uh some other dude i can't remember who it was uh were like oh that's a donnie darko yeah i wasn't sure that was answered that was that was a little strange to me also, was he I mean, already time traveling on tangent timelines? Well, I, I think we could also make the argument that that Grandma Death might be also another like living receiver, like a, pr a prior living receiver. Maybe I mean clearly she wrote the book on being a living receiver and the rules. So um, 
certainly it seems like it can happen more than once, which is interesting. But yeah, that's one of my criticisms is that there's rules. Just I'm, I'm going to piggyback on that. One of my criticisms of the movie is that in terms of the science-y, time travel stuff, uh, the timey-wimey sort of shit, like um, it, there's no real answers to a lot of like pertinent questions about how this was set up. Why is there a living receiver? Does a living receiver have to die? It, you know, there it, is he time traveling when he's in his sleep? Like there's so many things that if you pick apart the metaphysical components, the actual sort of reality of what's happening in Donnie's situation, the film becomes less, less valuable, less interesting to me, to me. Um, and it makes me a little annoyed. I, which is, which is atypical for me. I like typically horror movies that make me ask questions that give me a sort of vague, like Lovecraftian sort sort of elements in films tend to be the things that that I, I like cosmic what if like what is that cosmic dread big question mark vague um, sort of uh, vagueness with the monster what is the monster like those sorts of things tend to make me dig horror films this one set up rules that was so overtly incapable of answering very fundamental questions that all moviegoers would probably ask that it just sort of annoyed me a little bit. I don't know. Yeah, no, I'm with you there, Noah. And again, but this is only on the fourth viewing that I came to this. It feels like there was some lazy world building going on in the background. Um, you know, it, 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 it gets away with it at least the first time, even the first couple of times, because it's, you know, it's, it's doing the little three card Monty thing. It's moving around so fast. You don't quite see it, but once you get enough perspective to sort of hold it all in, it's like, wait, these rules are pretty fast and loose. They're pretty arbitrary. Um, and they seem like they're crafted more for a particular moment and a particular effect rather than being part of a cohesive world. Um, and that's disappointing because again, I think it could have done better. I think it could have pulled that off in a, in a much tighter way if it had set its mind to it. Yeah, it's it's like drunk Minecraft is the well, way I look at the way this was. Yeah. Question. So with the tangent timelines, does that fit into string theory? Does this fit into what we currently know as the different, you know, viewpoints well, of like how in, time works? Like, is it I, is it just bullshit? <laughs> I mean, well, speaking as you know, an expert in string theory, you know, triple PhD expert in string theory. Let me start, but no, I, yeah, I mean, I, th this is one of those things where, you know, it's, it, it, it's, uh, I feel like even if we had, I mean, I'm joking, but even if we had an expert in string theory, would it really be sufficient to answer the way the world was constructed? Like I, it, it bugged me. This is the thing about Donnie Darko that bugged me. I love this film. I love, I, I even like the, the time you want me stuff to a certain extent, but this is the stuff that bugged me is that it was so obviously, um, setting up rules that moviegoers would add, ask questions about that they don't even give you a morsel, even a morsel of something to 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 munch on. That bothered me. Yeah, yeah. I agree. I mean, as a triple major, uh, triple PhD uh, string theory expert, I can tell you that I don't know. Uh, <laughs> no, I mean, it sort of fits, fits with a lot of what has been cinematically portrayed as a uh, string theory and what is, I mean, a lot of this is, is uh, typical of our cinematic understanding of string theory and quantum mechanics and whatnot, which is super dumbed down uh, compared to uh, actually reading some of this stuff. So, yeah, I don't think there's any actual philosophy to the philosophy of time travel. Um, I, I, again, not an expert in string theory, but I don't think, I think it has fuck all to do with string theory. Um, but you know, from the point of view of a speculative metaphysics, if you will, uh, you know, it works every, any time travel story is going to have to at least have some uh, background ideas about how the metaphysics of time travel are supposed to work. 
And, you know, on the whole, there's nothing I, I, that I could see that was egregious about that that aspect of the film. So whether or not it fits with, you know, uh, string theory or any other relativity or anything else, uh, that I don't I don't think that's particularly a central question. But I'm more interested with its internal consistency, which at least for the most part, it seems to pass. So as Garrett has learned recently, a film that does the time travel thing well is Triangle, which is a fantastic uh, time travel film. One of my favorite horror films ever, and what I think is the most underrated horror film ever. We have a session on it. You should go watch it. It's really good. So that does time travel well. It does. It gives the respect of the loopiness. The questions that the audience member is going to ask, it foresees those things and flips it knowing what you're going to ask. It says, this is probably what people think are going to happen. We know that. So here's how we're going to fuck with you. It's one step ahead of you. And that tends to be with time travel, if you're going to do it right, I think that's how you should approach it as a maybe a writer. But anyway, uh, yeah. So a one that does that part particularly well is Triangle, which we have done a session on. So a quick side note, since we're bringing up time travel, uh, I would love to see a film. And if anyone knows a film that's been made this way, I want to see a film, a time travel film that's told in actual sequential order. So the earliest period in history that they travel back to, that's the scene you see first. And the viewer goes through just straight finish to end, uh, whereas the characters are jumping around. That to me seems like just a concept for a movie that's dying to get made, and I don't think it ever has been made. That's Trademark fantastic. registered copyright, Garrett Neary. <laughs> <laughs> um, uh, I think the closest thing to that is Primer, right? Primer and is pretty close. Um, uh, Time Crimes is another one, which arguably at least is doing something similar in that respect. Um, so it's, it's not that there hasn't been movies that have like gone in that direction, but I'm, I'm talking about like hanging a lantern on it, like just making it obvious that this is what, what you're doing, you know, rather than sort of, it's it sort of just being incidental in the background. Well, there's the challenge yeah, for any another... filmmakers watching it, the, the two that are watching it, uh, you now have a challenge from Garrett to make a film like that. Get to it. Well, another, uh, another film that actually kind of does that is The Time Traveler's Wife. Uh, which is the a really bad film, but uh, it kind of does what you're you're asking it to do. So there you go. Um, do you guys have any other any other? I keep wanting to go back to tangents. Do you guys have any other uh, any other trails we want to go down with with this film uh, before we close up shop? Anything else you guys want to say? Look, I, guys, it's been like two hours. We usually do about an hour and I knew this would happen with Donnie Darko. I'm like, we ain't doing, I told my wife before we did this. I'm like, I, look, I ain't coming out all night, right? There's, I just, it's going to be like a seven hour podcast. Do you guys have anything else you guys want to add about uh, Donnie Darko? Anything interesting we didn't explore? I think you guys have hit most everything that made this film interesting to me uh, for the most part. Um, uh, I, I guess the only thing I want to throw in is that most of the actors in it are attractive. It's fun to look at. <laughs> I, I, I like watching it. I, I keep watching it and I still like it. I, I I think it's visually perfect. You know, it's one of those things where you can just fall asleep watching and you know wake up to random parts and it's interesting and I don't know. I think it's it's great it's great to have in your library. Like I don't own very many DVDs. I probably own like maybe ten DVDs and this is one of the DVDs I own. So we've come across a lot of films in this podcast so far in the last year and a half that have turned into. Um, man, I'd love to fall asleep. I can fall asleep watching that. And it's not an indictment of the movie either. Um, you know, we, we've explored some of these movies. Session nine is one of the newer ones for me. I, I can just, that's, I don't know. I, I never should have shit on Garrett. Great, great ambiance. Yeah, <laughs> it, it really is. I mean, something about being in a, I think for me, it's a, it's just, um, a very, um, 
very similar setting throughout the course of the film. That does it, I think. Um, Pontypool is the, the best example of that for me. I, if you added up how many times I've watched Pontypool, if you count falling asleep to it, like probably hundreds. Um, I mean, so yeah, and uh, I could probably do it with this. I'm actually gonna try. I'll see what happens. I may just go, I may just get upset and be like, why didn't you answer that question? Why is he not going down through God's channel? Next thing you know, it's 4 a.m. and I'm pissed. Like I'm getting crushed by a airline and jet engine. Yeah. <laughs> well, um, Wouldn't that be so ironic? I was watching Donnie Darko while sleeping, got crushed by a jet engine, you know. <laughs> Perfect news headline. Hashtag horror life. Yeah, I, I feel like I would dream about that though. Like if I, you know what I mean? Like that would be the fear in watching, falling asleep watching Donnie Darko is that my brain would go, guess what motherfucker? Now we're gonna dream about getting crushed by a plane engine. That's what would happen. Anyway, anyway. Uh, do, do you have anything else you wanna add? Jim, I thought you had, you, uh, you had your hand up. Uh, yeah, the only thing I would add is that we had uh, in our in our chat poll of whether or not we should do uh, drag me to hell and Shayra should uh, take pictures of herself being blood soaked at an Evil Dead stage show. Uh, we only had one vote. It was from our co-host, <laughs> and uh, the the votes were yes and yes. It's from so, Ben from Ben Lindsay. So yeah, the yeses carry it. Um, yeah. All right, done. Uh, no, that's I'll, it. I'm ready to sum up if you are. Yeah, let's do it. I'm. I'm. I wasn't kidding. Like I'm adding. Okay. Drag me to hell. We're put. It's now gonna be on my film list. Um, in 28. There you go. <laughs> Whatever. <laughs> I, uh, you're the master of the schedule. Um, so, so I will do my. You want to do my oh, final fine. score? Yeah. So as as most of the viewers know who watch this podcast, uh, who watch this video. See, that's the other thing. Is, is this a podcast? Is it a, a video show? Who the hell knows? Uh, so one of the things that we do is we just mess up the score. So we usually do, is it out of 10? Is it out of five? We did five stars. For this one, let's do um, let's do 10. I feel like there's enough complexity to where like a 7.5 would make sense in Donnie Darko. So for me, you know, when I watch this movie, I, um, it's, it's, I am annoyed to a large degree, and I am also in awe to a large degree. I like the atmosphere of this movie is what makes it for me. I mean, that's kind of going off of what Shayra said. The music, the ambiance. Um, there are sequences that are very beautiful in this movie. I think that it attempts to be a little more tragic than it really is. Uh, I, I, you know, I the timey wimey stuff. I have some questions about that aren't answered. Not sure why that bothers me as much in this film as it does in others. Um, Overall, this movie, I mean, this movie was not existentially scary to me for the most part. I found it more interesting, more provocative, more political, and you know, to a certain extent for some of the reasons we've discussed tonight. Um, didn't strike me as a, you know, sort of Noah-esque horror film. And and, and to be fair, we've, we've done many films in this podcast that are not traditional horror films. I feel like this is supposed to be a traditional horror film or it's advertised as a horror film, didn't have any of the horror elements for me. And that doesn't mean it's it's not a horror film for other people, especially for Shara, since this was her selection, but um, didn't scare me. It was more thought provoking, more provocative than anything else. Um, I liked the uh, the uh, d d creation by destruction element. I liked challenging normative values, challenging simplistic interpretations, even if it's done through the lens of a, you know, acne filled, fucking, you know, te pompous teenager. Like that doesn't bother me. I, if that's the catalyst, I, dude, I've been there. I get it. Like I, we've all been there, right? Um, so overall, I'd probably give this movie like a seven out of 10. That may be really low for a lot of the, I feel like that's gonna piss off a lot of people. I mean, not that my score is super important in, in the broad scheme of things, but uh, for, for the world at large. But yeah, for me, it was like, a, I give it a seven. It wasn't, 
it wasn't the best horror film, but it it had um, it had enough to keep me interested. I'd certainly watch it again. And now I'm going to put it on my list of films to try and fall asleep to. Um, so uh, yeah, give it a seven. Give it a solid seven. So we'll go with Jim and then Garrett, and then I'll I'll end with Shara since this was hers. I'll I'll follow I'll follow up on that Noah because I agree with pretty much everything you said, um, and my score is actually the same as yours. 3.5 out of 5 and 7, that translates. Um, yeah, so I, I'm right along the lines. Um, the uh, the one thing that I thought uh, that I just sort of remembered was that one conversation about how dying alone is what's most scary and that the dog, uh, Jake Gyllenhaal's character, Donnie's dog, uh, went underneath to be alone for his death and how that would be the most terrible, uh, terrifying thing and how to some degree Donnie, um, Donnie's ultimate death isn't alone, although it is alone in the physical sense. It's not alone in his emotional sense. And I thought that that was a nice little poetic uh, uh, way to tie the film up. And really, I think that that's both the film's greatest strength and my greatest criticism of it. I think the film ties itself up in a poetic, ironic ending that works by and large, but it's almost too pat. Like the the, the ending is almost too too simplistic, too pat. And and I almost wonder why, like if they could have thrown in a wrinkle some way i i mean i think you'd have to go back to the original to the original uh storyboard of the film or the original uh genesis of the film in order to uh to make it not as pat at the end um so there's a lot of things i'd like about it but in the end i think that it's the that its weaknesses and its strengths are actually a hair's breadth away from each other um but overall i'm giving it a, a fairly to Garrett and let Shaver close. Um, I agree with much of what you guys said. Um, I get a lot of strengths in this film. It looks very good. It's well acted. It's well shot. The soundtrack is great. Uh, the design of Frank, both visual and audio, is, is, is wonderful. You know, no, no dispute about any of that. Um, but at the same time, I do feel that the the you know, the characters are leave a little bit wanting for me. Um, but the the real weakness of the film just seems to be that the, you know, it's not as smart as it thinks it is. You know, it 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 does a fantastic job of shuffling things around so, to keep you off balance so you can't quite follow up. But once you actually get to focus on what's happening, it's actually not so interesting. It's 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 kind of mundane and bland. Um, and uh, and not as cool as I thought it was the first time around. So it definitely suffered upon uh, uh, repeat viewings for me. Uh, so I actually give it a six out of 10 myself. I mean, obviously I like this movie a lot. <laughs> it will always be a longstanding favorite for me. Um, the, the main thing with this film for me is the fact that I watched it originally when I was a teenager and have later watched it as... A person in the adult category and there's new fears that have been brought to my attention from rewatch um you know going through puberty going through changes uh dealing with depression and loneliness uh figuring out where you fit into the world do you matter um all these things are very scary uh dealing with as a teenager and then when you get to becoming a, an adult and you're raising your own teen uh there's the real fear of 
are you doing the right thing for your child? Uh, are you actually there for them? Does anything you do actually matter in the in the long scheme of things? And it, and that's what the whole it's a wonderful life kind of theme does for me, and and the survival motif does for me with this film. It 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 fucks me up really bad. Um, do I matter? Does my existence matter? Am I going to die alone? Do my interactions with my family and my friends, is this even worth it? Um, you know, for right now, like we're talking about a film. How long will this video feed of us talking about some random film, how long will that last? Does it even matter that we're talking about this? Does it actually reach out to somebody and touch their heart? Or is it just me yelling into the wind? Uh, it's, it's something that definitely scares the shit out of me. And I, I know when I read the autobiography written by Christopher Hitchens, when he was getting close to death, he was losing his voice, his ability to actually speak, which was his main thing. And you actually see at the end of this autobiography, it starts to just be random words and then it just drifts away because he never got to finish his book, never got to finish what his thoughts were, never got to actually put all of himself out there. Um, that is the kind of dread that Donnie Darko does for me. You know, how much is my voice going to matter? How much do I matter? How much does any of this matter? It, it fucks me up. <laughs> and so for that, that is what really drives my fear from this film. And uh, I give it a 9.5. That has to do also with how scary Frank has always been to me. <laughs> that motherfucker, uh, his voice, the costume, the music that plays. Um, even Donnie's face when he's looking down and he looks all scary and he's like banging on this like liquid wall. Um, it's, it's frightening as fuck. And what, what all do we not know about the world around us? How much do we matter? Um, I don't know. It's the kind of yeah, stuff that keeps me up at night. Your, yeah. Your films tend to be ones in which we either are supplanted, our voice hasn't heard, we're transferred into something else. That's what I've noticed. Right. Whereas my, the films that scare me are more familiar uh, familial, more family oriented, more social. Like for example, I, I'm looking at our list here for the films that, you know, scare us the most, the ones that we want to talk about the most, you know, yours was the exorcist, which is like the quintessential movie of losing your voice and being taken over by something else. Do you know what I mean? When we explored that in the exorcist, um, and other people stuff, pod, pod people. <laughs> I was going to say that. Yeah. Invasion of the body snatchers, pod people, you know, you're the idea of a scary movie for you is the idea of losing losing your voice, losing that essence of you that is, I'm here a world and this is me, right? Even if it comes in the form of having a child, which is one of the things I think we explored in some of Which is why we films. should do a Little Mermaid at some point, you know, because she loses <laughs> her voice. <laughs> <laughs> this is literally the scariest film I've ever seen in my life, The Little Mermaid. Uh, yeah, no, I, I, uh, it's cool that that's, you know, that's why I, that's why I wanted this to be a podcast was for all of us to come together and be like, okay, so you have radically different ideas of what scares you in the world. Let's explore those through cinema, right? Same for me, same for Garrett. And over the course of a year and a half, we've really been able to sort of like see each other in a different way to go, I I, I can already tell this movie is going to scare Shayra, this movie is going to scare Garrett or Jen, you know what I mean? Like we have, I think, enough of a schema set up for each other to know like, oh, I, you got to see this movie. Didn't do it for me, but I, I this is going to scare the shit out of you, right? So on that note, um, yeah, we're doing, uh, we're doing Hereditary in two weeks. So join us uh, Sunday at 6 p.m. on uh, September 16th. Uh, Hereditary is my film. I selected that. Um, I, without going into it, I, I think Hereditary so far is the best horror film of 2018. I actually think it's better than any horror film in 2017, maybe with the exception of Get Out, but I, I, 
I, I, I, apples and oranges to a large extent. We'll probably explore that in two weeks. Um, Hereditary really fucked me up. I've seen it three times. It's it's scarier every time I watch it. It's one of the few films that has that in it, um, that element in it. So I'm, I'd be interested to explore that. Some of the themes we talked about this week will likely be in Hereditary, Free Will, all that stuff. It's from Greek philosophy. There'll be a lot of stuff going on in there. Um, but uh, join us in two weeks for that. Um, two weeks after that, I think we are doing I Saw the Devil. Uh, so we it, check out all of our schedule on our social media, our Facebook, our Instagram, our Twitter. We're there. Uh, you can go to deadlyanalysis.com. We're on iTunes. We're on sound. We're everywhere, guys. So check out our social media. If you have any films that you want us to take a look at, there's been some in the chat that I've noted down. Uh, we will do that. I also want to note to our co-host here that um, our chat scored this film. We had a 7, a 7, and 8. And an 11, oh no, a 10 and an 11, because that makes all the sense. So there are definitely some Donnie Darko fanboys here, uh, which I totally expected. So uh, if you guys like what you saw, uh, like the video, um, check us out in two weeks, subscribe to the channel. Um, we're getting more and more people each week, which is really fucking cool. I love having you guys here. You guys had great feedback. Um, so uh, if you have any more feedback, hit us up through our channel, let me know. Um, thanks for watching and we'll see you guys in two weeks for Hereditary.